Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash ERK. This program has been supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Welcome to Session 1, HIV and Hepatitis B Current Strategies for Managing HIV-HV Co-Infections. My name is Jürgen Roxel from the University Hospital in Bonn, Germany, and I'm joined here by my wonderful colleagues Debiga Bhattacharya from the Los Angeles University of California in the United States, and my dear friend Qian Ching-Hung from the National Taiwan University Hospital in Taiwan. We're going to talk today about hepatitis B prevalence, prevention strategies, and treatment of hepatitis B in people living with HIV. So let's start with looking at the prevalence of hepatitis B in people living with HIV. Obviously, because of shared transmission pathways, 7% of people with HIV also have hepatitis B. But how does it look in the U.S.? Debika. Thanks, Jürgen, and thanks so much for having me. Excited to be on this program. Um, so in the U.S., the prevalence of hepatitis B is 0.4%, and that represents about 880,000 individuals living with hepatitis B. Great. What about the situation in Asia? Chin Cheng. Thank, thank you, uh, Jürgen, for having me. Uh, uh, in Asia-Pacific region, I, I think it depends on the uh, countries where uh, you are looking at. Uh, for example, in, in Taiwan, uh, Taiwan used to be a hyper-endemic area for HPV transmission. So uh, those individuals were born before the implementation of nationwide HPV vaccination. The HPV severe prevalence will be as high as 15 to 20 percent. But for the, those individuals who were born after the wide implementation of HPV vaccination in the neonatal period, the HPV severe prevalence has declined to less than 1 percent. Great. So let's talk a little bit about why hepatitis B is so special in people living with HIV, and particularly what can we expect from the clinical course of hepatitis B in people living with HIV? Debika, can you take that forward? Yes, of course. So uh, really an important uh, issue in persons living with HIV. You know, this was a landmark study that was published in 2002 by Chloe Teo and colleagues that looked at um, almost 5,200 individuals living um, with hepatitis B and, uh, and or HIV uh, and or who were at risk um, for HIV and hepatitis B. And they followed them um, longitudinally. And what they found is that those individuals with HIV and hepatitis B had almost a 14 times increased risk of mortality compared to um, HIV or hepatitis B alone. So really a significant impact. Yeah, and I guess that's why we've always really underlined the importance of treating hepatitis B in people living with HIV, just because of that unfavorable clinical outcome. But who of those who live with HIV are at particular risk of becoming infected? So what are the particular transmission pathways and which key populations do we have to screen in particular, Chin Cheng? Yes, uh, because uh, HIV and HIV share the same transmission routes. So... Um, uh, men who have sex with men, particularly those who are at risk for a sexually transmitted infection, and uh, people who ingest drugs, who share needles or diluents, uh, these two uh, populations are at a significantly higher risk for uh, uh, HIV and HIV transmission. Great. Any other risk populations considerations, Debika, you might want to add? 
Um, I mean, I'll just add that in persons uh, with injection drug use, you know, that unfortunately for us in the U.S. is a population that's been increasing. And so if you look at incident hepatitis B infections from 2011 to 2019, let's say, there's been um, a steady increase in incident hepatitis B infections that is largely being driven by the opioid epidemic and the transition to uh, injection drug use as a means of obtaining opioids. So that really tells us we need to still think of vaccinating individuals to prevent hepatitis B. So Xianqing, why don't you sort of discuss how to prevent hepatitis B infection? What do the guidelines recommend around vaccination? The international guidelines recommends uh, HPV vaccination uh, to those at risk for uh, HIV and HPV transmission. So uh, those individuals who test a neg- zero negative, they should receive uh, HIV, HBV uh, vaccination at baseline or uh, during the follow-up. Great. And Devika, why, why has hepatitis B vaccination be so challenging people living with HIV? And what may explain why the response rates are so much lower? You know, that's a great question. So uh, looking at a meta-analysis, pooled rates uh, comparing um, persons living with HIV and uh, those without HIV are anywhere from 66% to 75% for the 20 and 40 microgram doses, respectively, of Endurix. Um, And it's hard to say, you know, I think many of the studies that looked at um, vaccinations uh, were pretty heterogeneous in terms of CD4 counts, but certainly having a lower CD4 count is a risk factor for a suboptimal response. Yeah, I guess that's why in the guideline committee, we sort of try to suggest that it makes probably more sense to wait when someone starts antiviral therapy until uh, suppression of our load is achieved and there is at least some amount of immune reconstitution, which does uh, improve the overall outcome. But Potentially, new vaccines or newer vaccines are being brought into the guidelines and also into the actual vaccination of people living with HIV. And so the question is, couldn't that be a way forward? And there has been a new compound which has been tested by the ACTG in the U.S. So, Devika, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about the results, which are quite exciting. Sure. Uh, yeah, thank you, Jurgen. So um, Heplisav, uh, which is the vaccine that Jurgen was referring to, is a newer vaccine, FDA approved in 2017, that has an, a, an immune adjuvant uh, that uh, basically augments um, the overall immune response. Um, and it has had very favorable outcomes in persons living without HIV. And so the question has been, you know, what about if we use this in persons living with HIV? So this was a trial called the Beehive trial done through the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, or ACTG, a multi-center phase three single-arm open-label trial. And it actually used um, a different dosing schedule for Heplosav. So the current dosing schedule is two doses, one month apart, zero and one. And this um, dosing schedule was three doses um, done at zero, um, uh, one month, and then um, 24 weeks. Um, And in this um, study, I think the most remarkable thing is that of these 68 uh, vaccine-naive participants, um, 100% had a seroprotective response. Also, interestingly, if you look at the overall darker um, shading of the blue in this uh, graphic, that represents individuals who had over 
uh, antibody response of over a thousand IUs per liter, uh, which is quite high. And almost 84% of individuals had that response when you looked uh, four weeks after that third dose. So I think this demonstrates two things. One, that two doses are probably just fine. And in fact, that's reflected in the guidelines of uh, Heplosav in persons living with HIV. But also, you know, are, what are you able to gain with three doses, uh, particularly as we think about um, waning immune responses over time? Yeah, I just wonder, because a lot of people never show up for the third dose, uh, whether eventually you can also use the two intervals only for uh, dosing this new vaccine, because that obviously would take away some of the issues we have with people not showing up for the third vaccination schedule. I think another important point to make just to end the prevention part here of this session is to highlight that when people are on antiviral therapy, which contains an HPV active agent such as tenofovir or 3TC, their probability of uh, obtaining a, a new HPV infection is significantly lower than those who have no HPV active agent in their ART in the setting of having a negative HPV serology, and this is from the Amsterdam MSM HIV cohort, uh, really reminding us that if we have individuals who are negative before the vaccination kicks in, it probably makes sense to give them a TAF or TDF-containing regimen to make sure that this, as a form of pre-exposure prophylaxis, protects them against a hepatitis B infection. Now, for those living with hepatitis B and HIV, clearly treatment is paramount, in particular in light of the unfavorable outcomes Debika showed so nicely. So, Xianqing, maybe you can summarize for us what the guidelines recommend for people living with HPV and HIV co-infection treatment-wise. Yes, I, I, uh, all those uh, international guidelines are uh, recommended or people living with HIV who had HIV co-infection to receive antiretroviral therapy that uh, includes uh, TDF or TAF uh, uh, against uh, both HIV and HBV, uh, not just uh, lamimudine or antisetamine, because uh, HBV uh, uh, treated with only uh, lamimudine or antisetamine, the HBV were uh, uh, resistance to uh, the uh, antisetamine or lamimudine will emerge very rapidly. Yeah, so clearly HPV resistance with 3TC, FTC is an issue. Uh, but what do we do now in the setting of individuals who have a sign of a pass infection um, with only anti-HPC positivity, which we find in probably around 25% of people living with HIV, and we want to switch them to an ART, which does not include an HPV active component, so a, a certain 2DR regimen or in particular long-acting regimens. What would be your answer to that, Debika? Yeah, Jurgen, great question. I think that's the single uh, most popular question I get asked these days in clinic. Um, and I think we're in a data-free zone, right? We don't have um, the we don't have uh, data to guide us. Um, there have been case reports of flares um, in individuals with um, isolated core or even just core antibody positivity who are coming off of HPV active therapy. And so I think that does merit some caution. My standard approach uh, now is to um, recommend um, monitoring of ALT post uh, switch to a non-HBV active regimen, i.e. with long-acting injectables, um, and to monitor for flares at the um, uh, at uh, one month and then at three to six months. But I'm cognizant that things can change as we get more data. 
Yeah, and we're just at the beginning of the long acting era, so I'm sure we're going to see more data uh, with regard to that uh, particular issue. I think in general, we should highlight that when we switch people who live with HIV and chronic hepatitis B from a TDF or TAF-containing regimen to something else, we should be well aware that if it's 3TC or FTC only as an HPV component, that may lead to resistance, as Qian Qing has already alluded to. Uh, and then we shouldn't forget that for those who have only anti-HPC antibodies in the presence of an immune suppressive therapy commonly seen, for example, for lymphoma with your tuximab, you can see hepatic decompensation, hepatic flares, which is very, very danger, dangerous and life-threatening and clearly has to be avoided under all circumstances. And clearly having a HPV active agent on board of these individuals when they receive immune suppression makes uh, a lot of sense. So let me just summarize. I, I think we're well aware, and I think what we try to show is that the prevalence of hepatitis B people living with HIV remains high. It's probably around 6%. It varies from region to region. A lot has to do with the implementation of birth uh, vaccination rates, which can substantially decrease the overall uh, prevalence of hepatitis B. But in older populations, particularly where this birth vaccination did not exist, you could still expect a higher rate. There are shared transmission pathways between HIV and hepatitis B, affecting in particular uh, MSM and drug users, uh, where we commonly can find hepatitis B infection also in new outbreaks of opioid use. This has been described. Uh, with regard to prevention, obviously vaccination is therefore very important. Uh, New vaccines are on their way, potentially promising better response rates. So I think that's good to know. Clearly having a TAF or TDF containing regimen and those who are completely zero negative until vaccination uh, works uh, may be a way forward as a pre-exposure prophylaxis. And with regard to treatment, clearly a TAF or TDF based ART should be chosen because that shows very good potency, very little resistance risk. Uh, whereas if you're on different agents like 3TC or FTC, uh, there is a risk for HPV resistance emergence. So thank you for listening and I hope you join us for session two. Welcome to this peer voice panel discussion on HIV and HBV co-infection. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Jurgen Rockstro and Drs. Debika Bhattacharya and Chen Ching Hung. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Welcome to Session 2, Impact of HIV Regimens on HPV and Vice Versa, What's Known and What's New. My name is Jürgen Rockstro from the University Hospital in Bonn, Germany, and I'm joined here by my wonderful colleagues, Devika Bhattacharya from the University of California, Los Angeles, United States, and Qinqing Hang from the National Taiwan University Hospital in Taiwan. So let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges around the treatment uh, of HPV co-infection in people living with HIV, and also a little bit about subsequent HCC monitoring. So what are the benefits and limitations of current management of hepatitis B in people living with HIV? What comes to your mind, Devika? Well, you know, um, I, I think uh, actually the benefits are that now with um, largely tenofovir-containing regimens as part of the nucleoside nucleotide um, backbone, um, that uh, treatment for hepatitis B in persons living with HIV and hepatitis B is almost automatic, right? But that is also a limitation of current management because I think people often forget, as we talked about earlier, 
um, that tenofovir uh, has HBB active um, activity. And so individuals have to remember that before they um, stop if they want to transition to a non-HPV active therapy. I, I will say, since we're talking about long-acting injectable therapy, you know, one of the limitations is that long-acting injectable therapy does not yet apply for those living with HIV and hepatitis B because there are no HPV active agents. So they would have to continue to take oral therapy. Great. So I think one point I want to make is that if you look at the overall impact of HIV treatment on these markers of hepatitis B infection, little bit in contrast to studies in mono infection, you actually have a higher probability of seroconversion. And that has something to do with the higher rate of chronicity. So if you have HIV and you get infected with hepatitis B, your probability of getting chronic hepatitis B is probably six times higher. But on the other hand, if you would have cleared hepatitis B in the first place, then probably by immune reconstitution, uh, you can actually clear infection. And in this uh, larger German cohort, 18% were able to clear HBS antigen, which is pretty high and, and different, which reminds us that we still have to look at hepatitis B uh, markers over time because that actually may change uh, uh, over, over time. So looking at the data which is emerging around hepatitis B co-infection, there was a recent study uh, called Alliance. It was like one of the first studies comparing uh, TAF and TDF in treatment-naive HIV, HPV co-infected individuals. Maybe, Debeg, you want to take a, a look at this and tell us a little bit what was the main outcome. Yeah, thank you, Jurgen. So really exciting trial done by Anjali Avasignan and her colleagues um, looking at, as you've mentioned, um, tenofovir alafenamide versus um, tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate um, in two different uh, regimens in a multicenter study um, in persons living with HIV and hepatitis B. So they were randomized to either uh, bictegravir, emtricitabine, and uh, tenofovir alafenamide, or dolutegravir and emtricitabine and tenofovir desproxyl fumarate. And I think kind of the take-home messages first is that HPV DNA suppression at the week 96 um, evaluation was uh, a little bit higher in the um, TAF-containing um, regimens of 75 versus 70% were suppressed. But I think kind of the exciting news that many of us um, kind of perked our ears at were uh, the E-antigen the e uh, and surface antigen loss. So E-antigen loss at week 96 was 38% um, uh, versus 20% um, TAF versus TDF. And then if you looked at surface antigen loss, again, what we've described as accelerated in some um, cohorts, 23% um, surface antigen loss compared to 14 and already high, 14%. Uh, uh, and similarly, surface antigen seroconversion, which arguably is the holy, holy grail of functional cure therapies was nine and 7% um, respectively. So, uh, so really interesting um, difference between the two. So Xian Qing, let me ask you, do you think that this data makes sort of uh a push towards using TAF over TDF, or would you say in Asia, both drugs work very well? Yes, of course. I think the the higher rates of uh, HBE uh, antigen loss and seroconversion and uh, numerically higher rate of HBE uh, surface antigen loss and, and seroconversion, that's really a great news to uh, many Asia-Pacific regions where the HBV has been so hyper endemic. Uh, so uh, uh, 
the other the other uh, consideration is also the uh, chronic uh, complication related to prolonged exposure to TDF. For example, renal dysfunction and uh, bone mineral uh, loss, uh, the density loss. So um, I, I mean, I mean, in, in here in Taiwan, we already uh, switch all TDF uh, continuous regimen to TAF continuous regimen for those who had HIV and HBV co-infection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's a fair point uh, because obviously the renal and bone toxicity is different between the two compounds, and that may per se be a reason why you want to favor TAF over TDF. Although I would highlight that uh, there was a little bit of disbalance with uh, baseline viremia for hepatitis B, uh, and which may have favored the uh, the TAF arm over the TDF arm. And, and the numbers are small, and if you just have two or three more serial conversions, which can happen because of the high baseline viral load the overall zero conversion rates may actually get much closer, but you're absolutely right that there are also other aspects we need to consider. And this is also true, obviously, when we manage people living with HIV and HPV, it's not only straightforward giving a tenofovir-containing regimen, but there are other things to worry about, and that is in particular the emergence of HCC. So the question is, um, how do we screen? So maybe, David, you take it off how you would recommend screening, and then maybe Chin-Chin can tell us how it's done in Asia with an even higher risk of cancer development. Sure. Uh, thank you, Jurgen. So, uh, you know, I think just a reminder first that individuals with hepatitis B need screening and not just when they have cirrhosis, right? So the first um, kind of uh, check mark is, do they have cirrhosis? Yes, no. And those individuals with hepatitis B uh, obviously need uh, HCC screening. But also a reminder, again, um, kind of reviewing the our AASLD guidance is that um, Black men um, over the age of 40, Asian men over the age of 40, Asian women over the age of 50, again, because of the, the lifetime exposure uh, risk of hepatitis B, um, uh, should get HCC screening in addition to persons with a first degree family member with a history of hepatocellular carcinoma and persons with Delta virus. And that's kind of across the board. Many, um, many um, practitioners uh, feel, uh, given that the increased risk of HCC in persons living with HIV, um, will um, start screening individuals with HIV and hepatitis B um, at 40 as well, starting at the kind of lowest um, baseline age for advanced risk. And we screen with alpha protein and ultrasound every uh, six months. And Chin Cheng, how do you do it? Yes, uh, in Asia Pacific region, I think uh, sonography is the uh, main tool for uh, HCC screening, and um, it's recommended that uh, sonography should be performed at least uh, once annually for those who had HPV uh, co-infection. And but for those who had uh, 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 cirrhosis of the liver, the frequency of uh, screening will be increased to uh, at least twice annually, and. Other than sonography, uh, every six months, we also provide uh, testing for uh, amino transferases and, and predict count. Great. And uh, some of the guidelines use the page B score for screening to sort of uh, identify individuals with higher or lower risk for HC development. Can you comment on the page B score a little bit or what the findings are? Uh, the page uh, B score uh, was uh, derived from about uh, uh, 1,300 uh, Caucasian uh, male um, people uh, with HBV mono infection. And they found that uh, we, using age, sex, 
and project counts, they were very uh, uh, simple and easy to acquire and to uh, uh, predict those individuals with HBV bone infection, uh, the, the risk of uh, hepatitis, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma in the next five years uh, with, uh, during the treatment uh, with NUC. And uh, the validation uh, cohort suggests that the, the negative predictive value will be as high as uh, um, 99% for those individuals who had a, a score less or equal to 10. So um, in uh, 2023, uh, there are four uh, uh, cohorts uh, in, in European countries. They use the four cohorts uh, to externally validate the patch B score in predicting uh, hepatocellular carcinoma among people living with HIV. In the original patch B uh, validation or a derivation cohort, uh, the, the HIV past individuals uh, were excluded. But in this uh, uh, just uh, newly published data, they used the PHB uh, score to sort of externally uh, validate the, the um, performance of PHB, uh, uh, performance of a PHB score in predicting the uh, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. They found that, the, again, the uh, negative predictive value uh, was as high as uh, 90%. 9.4%, suggesting that uh, using the uh, score of 10 or even uh, 12, they could uh, identify those individuals who are less likely to uh, have to really undergo uh, uh, annual or uh, frequent uh, screening. Perfect. I think that will be very helpful. So let me summarize. Uh, what we have been talking around here. So I think what we have to note is that people living with HIV when they become HPV infected have a higher risk of chronicity, but under successful treatment with TAF or TDF, they are more likely to show signs of seroconversion. Uh, I think there's some data suggesting that TAF over TDF may be associated with a little bit more seroconversions for HB antigen, potentially numerically also for HBS antigen loss. Whether that will play out over time, I think we don't know, but there are also other added values, obviously, of TAF use around um, less bone and mineral density toxicity. HCC screening remains paramount in people living with HIV and hepatitis B, uh, and ultrasound is recommended, obviously more frequent in people with liver cirrhosis, and the PHP score has now also been validated in people living with HIV and hepatitis B. So thank you for listening, and uh, hope you visit one of our other sessions soon. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.